and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Clifford Thompson, author of Falling Through Fire, about the art of writing narrative non-fiction, how to broach emotional subject matter and why life experience helps you write a textured book. As we turned into the estate, the officer in charge riding the front of the pump sent a coded message on the main radio channel, M2FE, Foxtrot 311, Foxtrot 312 and Foxtrot 314, all status 3, over. This told the control room that we had arrived. I climbed from my machine's cab and with the other two officers looked up at Cedar Court, there was a fire raging on the 13th floor. Get the keys to the dry riser box, breathing apparatus crew to the lift, take a couple of lengths of hose and a branch. The station officer ordered the firefighters as they flew into action. The driver of Kingsland Pump connected two lengths of hose from a hydrant in the street to one of the trucks and was rolled out from the trucks to the dry riser inlet outside the tower block. Lockers on the trucks flew open as firefighters took ropes, an extinguisher and a sledgehammer. My crew were in breathing apparatus with face masks hanging around their necks headed for the lifts. Gusts of black smoke flew into the dimming cobalt skies. Bursts of flames rose against the facade of the block. This is what we called a working job, a serious fire that required crews to get to work. Rubbish burning in a bin would not be classified as a working job, but one where you can see someone needs help and what you're doing impacts on someone else. That's a working job. I was in charge of Kingsland's pump ladder, which carried rescue and cutting equipment, breathing apparatus, as well as a pump and tank full of water, my men were responsible for rescue and were the first to enter the burning flat, taking the lift a hundred feet above ground ahead of me. Stopping on the floor below, they climbed into the stairs to the smoke-filled landing and the burning flat. The station officer and I entered the lobby and were about to take the lift when a man looking agitated suddenly appeared. There's a body on the ground. It's around the back. He spat out the words, his voice filled with breathless panic. Get round there, Cliff, the governor shouted. Make pumps for persons reported he said, instructing one of the drivers to send a priority radio message and request additional pumps. Six miles away, an officer in the headquarters control room in Lambeth dispatched more crews from neighbouring stations, Homerton and Shoreditch, bringing the total to four. We called these fires makeups, another name for a working job. A person's reported meant that some was, someone was missing, trapped or unaccounted for, so an ambulance and the police were always also called by the control officer. Such jobs were very common. Some escalated to 6, 8, 10, 15, 20 and 25 pumpers involving hundreds of firefighters. A job that was well alight was described by firefighters as going like a bastard. And it was these fires that we loved the most. Hi Cliff, thank Hello. you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Um, thank you, yeah we're so pleased to have you. Like such an unusual novel that we're going to be talking to you about today. Not so novel. Well, it, well, it, well, you say not okay, novel, sorry. but we were just talking about the fact that it is a non-fiction memoir, essentially. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But it is published to look like a novel. Yeah, it's narrative non-fiction, so it's uh, quite a traditional genre, but um, I guess it's having a bit of a resurgence. Memoirs go in and out of fashion, and luckily mine was in fashion at the right time. Absolutely. So for anyone who's not read it yet, could you tell our listeners a little bit about Falling Through Fire? 
Yeah, well, it is, um, as I say, written like a novel, and it's meant to capture some of the experiences I had in the early part of my career as a firefighter, working on lots of major disasters, and then as a journalist, working on even more disasters. And then really the core of the story is going back to revisit one of those stories as a firefighter, now as a journalist and a writer, um, to meet the woman, a woman whose three-year-old son died in my arms in a house fire in 1991 and that really is the the kind of climax of the the story the peak of the narrative arc if you like mm. and um so what led you to write the book when did you start how long ago did you start writing it i went to the buntsfield fire in 2005 a massive fire in a oil storage depot in hertfordshire for the bbc um and one of the my my bosses and news editor said you know we should be making use of this guy's experience and I'd never really thought of that I'd seen the the two halves of my career as then and now and it was also very very difficult because of some of the traumatic experiences to go back and revisit them and so I, after Buntsfield in 2005 I started to write and then um, I got a short attachment to the BBC News website and wrote some features for them about disasters and suddenly thought I've got quite a lot to say here and I sort of thought you know seven years as a firefighter is not nowhere near enough um, to fill a whole book and actually landed up leaving out quite a lot of disaster that I had much more to say than I really anticipated. Mm. And and how did you find kind of making the jump from writing journalistically on for places like the BBC to starting to write more as a narrative, like you said? Yeah, th- th- that's a good question and, and it is a big difference. But of course, the book is very heavily research-based. Um, if you look at the back, there's a whole three or four pages, I can't remember how many pages of sources. And we didn't do inline citations or notes or end notes or footnotes but I thought it was really important to have that research in there and actually things like public inquiry reports can be great sources of dialogue because they're recorded in in uh, inquests and in courts word for word. Mm. Um, so that's what something I wanted to pick up on is that you along with the kind of the very factual information that you have to get across there's quite a lot of technical language as well if you're not if you're not sort of au fait with the fire service and there's lots of lovely in-house terms as well which which really served to kind of bring you into the book and kind of get that idea of the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the fire service but how do you input that technical language without sort of breaking the narrative yeah that's a really good question most um non-fiction books would have a glossary at the back or some kind of explanatory chapter and i i toyed with the idea of the second chapter explaining a bit of the history and structure of the london fire brigade in my time and um actually this broke the narrative of the storytelling. So the way I got around that was to gradually introduce the technical terms. So things like a stop message, which is the radio message that's sent at the end of a fire, is explained fairly early on. And the other thing is, I just decided to kick the book off with one dramatic incident by way of a prologue and and get quite a lot of technical information into that that then comes back into play later on in the story. It works really well, actually, because you soon get into it and it soon does become sort of like second nature to kind of understand what's going on. So it works really well. Um, how, so obviously you're, you mentioned that you're a journalist and you've also completed an MA at City University in narrative nonfiction. Yeah. Um, so was that specifically with the view to writing this book? And um, how do you think, how, which one do you think has kind of been more useful or do you think you've needed both of those kind of areas well, of expertise yeah um so when i signed up for the ma in 2009 in fact i deferred it a year to 2010 but when i first looked into it for 2009 you have to submit about 5,000 words so you already have to be writing before you even start the course it might have changed a little bit now but certainly then you had to have some words down on the page and you also had to have some experience 
preferably some kind of journalistic experience. Um, and I think working within the structure of a master's degree is is basically, you know, the book was read by about nine people, all professional writers, mm. all gave feedback. Um, working with your tutor is like working with an editor. We do modules on the publishing industry, how to get an agent and things like that. And I have to say, City, University of London's got a fantastic reputation and it's delivering year after year brilliant new writers um, into the industry, which is really, really good. So is that kind of, um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey towards publication? Like, was did you go and do this course and then work on the book? Did you go into the into the course, obviously, with the book idea? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I had yeah. the idea. And um, um, basically, I'd written about 18,000 words by halfway through the first term. Bearing in mind, it was, it was part-time. So we were studying um, two nights a week. Um, and... Basically, you just build up that writing, but then you strip it back and you start again. You strip it back and you start again, and it's just layering it up. And you know that you've got those deadlines. You have a 10,000 word. I think it was a, a 10,000, a 20,000, a 60,000 deadline over the, the, the two years. So you're you're working as if you really are working on a real book with a real mm. editor. And then towards the end of the course, you start to look at how to approach agents and publishers, which I found really, really useful mm. um, because it's, that's the one area where a lot of new writers go wrong. Yeah. So what tips would you offer to um, people that are looking for an agent within the field of this, a similar kind of genre to you? I mean, look exactly for the genre that they represent, that, that, that matches your genre, and look specifically at their guidelines. If they, sub, say, submit three chapters, don't submit a whole book. Um, if there are any typos in your cover letter, then you're probably not even going to get looked at beyond that. Be really, really diligent. And also, the, 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 the best bit of advice I can give to anyone about agencies, don't do block emails, group emails to 10 mm -hmm. or 15 agents, particularly if they're all listed without blind copying them, because you just won't get looked at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good advice. Did you did you find getting an agent quite easy, or was it quite a long process? Well, we, we had um, a sort of public performance where we had to pitch to agents or read to agents, Um at the end of the two years and we also did pitching sessions as well we pitched to other publishing students oh, cool. um, and then we had an anthology at the end of the course which was I think it was about three or four thousand words and by then I'd had one agent who'd come to my reading who was quite keen to represent me I had two more contact me from the anthology and the thing about the course uh, City I don't know about other universities but with, with City um, agents take it very very seriously so you tend to jump up the slush pile very very quickly yeah. and I've been to I'm sometimes embarrassed to say it but I've been to other people's book launches spoken to their agent and their agents flicked out a business card and said send me some some writing so persist and you know really stick to what they're looking for mm. and obviously your book is very timely um, I don't know where you were in the process when obviously the Grenfell Tower fire happened. Had it been published by then or were you still? It just was just about to go to press and it did, um, it did initially it made me wonder whether I should write some kind of postscript to what happened at Grenfell. But it's very, very early to write about Grenfell. In fact, there are now two other books that have been acquired from firefighters or former firefighters one which is is, is linked to Grenfell but the thing with big disasters is, is you need distance and time and you can't write anything more really than a, than, a, than a bit of journalism that would have been tagged on to the end of the book so we didn't include that and it was getting very very late for getting the book to press and we had our publication date and we had orders going into shops so um, but of course it has provided a good peg for doing other media um, and 
you know the the spotlight has been shone on the fire service in a way that it never has before. Mm, and and in in that vein, did you have any concerns about how it might be received? Um, how people might maybe by the people would be more interested, or it might be? Did you you know does that cross your mind? Or the 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 overriding thing for me is that it's an honest account of death and disaster. It's not a happy book. It's certainly not a Christmas book um, <laughs> for for anyone thinking of buying it as a present. Obviously, please do buy it. Um, but it is. Um, I think brutally honest is what, what, what the editors say on, on, on the blurb um, about death. And sometimes people want to see that unvarnished truth. And, uh, to, to you know, I, I've done it in a sensitive way. I've not done it gratuitously. I've done it respectfully. I'm born that in mind. And but, but you do need distance and time to do that. You couldn't do that about a disaster that happened six months ago or a year ago. No, absolutely. Could you give us a little glimpse into maybe sort of how it's structured and some of the sort of stories that you make, maybe like an example of one of the stories that you tell within the book, or if you don't mind giving that away? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a good um, example is is taking individual chapters that relate to individual disasters. So there are two chapters about the um, King's Cross fire, um, which was a, a massive fire of its time in, in um, 1987. And... That was interesting for me because I used a lot of research. So I, I used a lot of quotes from people who, who were cited in the um, inquest and, and, and public inquiry reports. But they, they're kind of standalone chapters. But what that what that adds to the story is what I didn't know about what was happening at the time. So I was a firefighter on duty that night. Were, wow. And we were waiting to get called and we're thinking, this, you know, there's 10, 20, 30 fire engines, 150, 200 firefighters. And, we, and it was the kind of what we didn't know I mean it was awful you know there was no mobile phones there was no social media if you wanted to find your family you had to go and use a payphone at the end of the fire station and that is a theme that recurs throughout the book um, it's about what I didn't know about disasters that really really troubled me and that's so different to today we've got a fantastic fire commissioner Danny Cotton London's first woman fire commissioner who has said herself, you know, she's had counselling after Grenfell. This is fantastic. This mm. is a massive change in attitude in 30 years and it's for the best. And so I've picked out some of those threads and kept them running through the book. And actually, I wasn't going to write um, an epilogue, um, but I did. And I, I captured some of those themes about things like Facebook groups, Twitter, how Mind has a blue light campaign for helping um, emergency service workers deal with the things that they come up with i mean these are all fantastic yeah that's that's such a massive thing about being you know firefighters are so brave and like the emotional impact must be considerable and so that yes that's a, it's a topic that you yeah um, and i mean one of the other things that i do quite a lot and i love playing around with narrative and time is the flashbacks to, to to childhood so there's a whole theme or strand running through the book about war and coming back from war and about growing up alongside the um old men in grey suits and boots that had fought in World War One, um, and my mum's my, my dad, you know, fought at the, the Somme and Ypres. And that's a great thing. You can play around. This is the great thing about narrative non-fiction and memoirs. You really can play around with flashbacks and flashing forward, foregrounding what's going to come in the future. So the, the, the book's a bit like a cake, really. It's in layers with different strands, and the kind of cream in the middle is like the memoir bit, and then the top and bottom are the kind of overarching incidents that pack it all together yeah. if that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. I, like, I like that yeah. analogy <laughs> anything that talks about cake is fine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 fine. Um, but it, obviously it is it's like you said it's dealing with topics that are of a sensitive nature obviously to you know anyone who's been in a disaster anyone who's lost a relative in a disaster what 
tips would you advise for authors who are looking to write a sort of something similar? How would you advise them to approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be really, really careful because even 20, 30 years after an incident, there's the real risk of causing harm and unpleasantness to, to family members and victims of major disasters. And I think the key to it is is that a lot of the a lot so that's why I have the sources at the back because um, you can work out the things that come from what was said in inquest, which is an area of, of the legal system that really fascinates me, and how people um, recall death and and how that's dealt with. So that information is in the public domain, as are a lot of the other sources, newspaper articles, and things like that. Um, there's always this issue that comes up of do you get permission? should you seek permission from the people that you interview? I mean, at the end of the day, you have the right to write about what you want to. You know, we live in, thankfully, we live in a country with free speech. Um, But with the case of the story of Gordon, the the boy who died in my arms, um, his mother and grandmother, I've had several meetings with them. I've shown them the manuscript and we had to get it signed off legally by the lawyers. And I think this is one of the things, um, I don't know if you were going to talk about self-publishing or being traditionally published, but if you are traditionally published, you should have the support of the publisher's lawyer and things like that to help you around those issues. So there are a couple of legal issues, but actually Betty and Kim, the, the, the grandmother and mother of Gordon, have nothing but kind of respect for what I tried to do to, to save their boy. Um, so they were happy for me to tell the story and they were happy for me to tell it in an, in an honest way, um, but without dwelling on it or being, you know, too graphic about it. Mm. And obviously, you, I mean, you're recounting from your own point of view as well you're not claiming it's it's a history you know it's not a biopic it's it's a you know this is my experience of these events so yeah I mean like I say you have the right to to write about your experience um thankfully we live in a democracy where where, where we're able to do that but like I say I think I think you do have to be mindful of that and definitely go to your primary sources um if you're doing a research-based I mean all writing research-based but particularly with non-fiction particularly with narrative non-fiction you know go to your primary sources and see what was said see what was on the record at the time because you've got that to to fall back on um you know if there are problems down the line and i think if you if you tried to get everything you know proofread and approved by everybody that you interviewed or every story that you told you'd never get the book written yeah exactly exactly If you worry too much about that as well, it'd probably be it'd just be block after block after block, wouldn't it? Like, yeah. At some point, you just have to let your own natural storytelling, you know, take over a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing, oh, I think, one of the interesting things about the, the the book is that the number of research sources that I use to create dialogue from, and narrative nonfiction, as you know, is dialogue driven in the in the the, the vein of um, Norman Mailer, um, Truman Capote, Joan Didion. Um, Tom Wolfe, you know, that was the whole new journalism movement, the whole narrative non-fiction thing. Dialogue is, is key, what people are saying, what they're doing. And um, and actually you can convert. So I converted audio interviews, which I'd done specifically for the book. I converted audio interviews that I'd done for other purposes and even TV interviews that I'd done and made them into dialogue. And it's not quite the same because, you know, you have to think if you're if you're doing an interview for a book you need to know like here the color of the, there's a padded wall that's green and another blue wall and a wooden table um and you have to get all that detail in as well because that's as much part of the interview certainly for the uh, new journalism movement which i'm a big fan of um is to get all that detail in as well if that sounds like a very very obscure description of a room can i just affirm <laughs> that we are sitting in a room with a green padded wall a blue wall and a dark table as crazy as that sounds that's where we are <laughs> 
Um, so, yeah, so as a reader, we as we read it, we very much grow up with you as you progress through the fire service. So um, what did you learn in the process of writing this book? What did I learn about, myself, about um, myself? I mean, yeah. I think writing the, the book was um, cathartic. I mean, the, the, the chapter about Gordon, where I recount the story of that night where he died in my arms, I had to go away for a week yeah. and, and literally be on a beach in the sun and write in the morning and then relax in the afternoon even to get that down. And there was also quite a lot of technical information in there from reports and detail that had to be sort of stitched into the narrative to get it right that was quite a complicated chapter to, to write and I couldn't do that at home it was yeah. too too difficult so I think um yeah I suppose I did learn a lot about myself you know I originally said it's a coming of age story as well um which I think it is because I think you keep learning by going back over events and your perspective on those events changes there was a time when I couldn't even look at any of the reports about the fire in which Gordon died without getting emotional and upset and then to be able to write about them and then to be able to have that published and then to do radio and TV interviews talking about that has, has been quite an amazing experience. Yeah. How long did it take you to write, would you say? Was it the course of the MA or had you been like toying with it a bit before? Yeah, so well, there was a bit... Start to finish. Yeah, there was a little bit before the MA. Like I say, you had to get 5,000 words down and that was when I went to one of the open nights and had a kind of light bulb moment and suddenly realise what narrative non-fiction was. It's writing in scenes mm. and stitching the scenes together. So overall, um, the book took two years to write and we didn't add much for publication. So pretty much the book that's published now is the same as the one when I graduated in 2012, oh, wow. plus or minus 10,000 words here or there. That's very impressive. Yeah, that is yeah. impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and what about next books? We've talked about, we talked a little bit off, off mic about how once you've kind of written your first book, you've got bitten by the bug and you need to carry on. So what's next? Is there another book in the offing? Well, I think um, I think the, the Grenfell Fire has definitely shone a spotlight on the fire service and on, on, on the work of the men and women who do that job as firefighters day in, day out. And I think I think it's it's something that that people are fascinated by. And I think I'd like to do if I could just do it now and you were my editor and you'd say, yeah, we'll commission it, it would be a kind of flashman story with an adventuring firefighter who's a bit of a journalist who was kind of like me. And then I'd use some of those experiences mm. I'd had and, and, and write them as, as fiction and also maybe go back and do some historical stuff. I mean, there's a whole um, there's a whole really interesting thing about the history of the fire service and the Victorian founder, Massey Shaw, of, of modern day what we call modern-day firefighting. You know, he was celebrated in Punch. He was a fan of the opera. He was he was had lyrics uh, cited in Elanthe about him. You know, there's these fascinating characters that you can go back and explore and, and probably make them into fictional characters. And um, I suppose Flashman um, is not politically correct for the 21st century. It was very much of its time. But that kind of adventure story that kind of appeals to, from teenagers to sort of grown men it's something I'd like to do, but I'm not sure. Oh, it's so I ideas. don't know. It sounds gripping. It sounds, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds yeah. good. Maybe a little bit more fun to write as well. Mm. Like you yeah. can enjoy the kind of experience of it a bit, maybe a little bit more. I'm sure this was enjoyable in its own way, but mm. maybe a bit more yeah. creative flair. And I think I think um, for, for, for people embarking on a writing career, you just need to go and have as many different experiences in the real world. Um, I always give a good example that we discussed uh, during my MA about whether you can write about New York by Googling a street map <laughs> view of it. 
Well, I mean, you can, but what you're writing about is your experience of looking at a map on a computer. Mm. You're not really writing about being immersed in the moment. And I think narrative non-fiction writers have to be immersed in the moment. Huntress Thompson lived with the Hells Angels for a year um, to write that book. Norman Mailer went on training runs with Muhammad Ali to do the fight. And I think even if you're writing fiction, even if you're writing young adult um, novels, whatever, I think you just need to have as many different experiences as possible and, and expose yourself to to things that you maybe wouldn't have done otherwise and really really just immerse yourself in, in experience because that's where the writing comes from. Yeah, that's a, such a valid point because, you know, I think writers have this feeling that they need to kind of chain themselves to their desk to be able to write. And like, and like But all inspiration comes from life experience. You know, this is a culmination of all of your life experience. So it's kind of a very sage point. Mm. I mean, that's a really good point because we're coming up... Um, in 2018 to the centenary of the armistice the end of world war one this is a massive moment and of course you can write books about world war one from archives and research but you can also go and visit monuments you can go and visit the monument in your local town and just get the feel of the names what were the names like how old were they mm. these were boys you know that's you can get so much detail from that and and galleries and museums are, to an extent that you can get close enough to the exhibits and, and, and immerse yourself in them but um, I think that's that's really important just to soak up as much of your subject as you can if it's a biography whatever you're writing mm. um, just find out about as much and experience as much of what your characters will experience in the book or their stories will be about. Was that something that you think you've taken from working as a journalist or do you think that's something that you've taken from studying the like, or obviously it could just be your own ideas but like is that something because like I do a course and they we would talk we write from like the point of view of objects and it's all about kind of like thinking about different perspectives and stuff and like do you think that do you think that you would have gone and done all that kind of stuff if you hadn't have had the guidance to do that well there's a slightly different way I'm going to answer the question which is to say that if you're a journalist you are a little bit of a disadvantage because you tend to write in a journalistic way I don't write full-time I'm a television journalist so I'm more okay. of a producer so I, I film and and edit things um but um, yeah, that's um, I've lost my sorry. I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> I was, no worries, right? It was, it was the, the question was about whether you think you've come to kind of going and immersing yourself in that kind of um, detail of the story. Do you reckon that's come from learn, like learning your craft through an MA, or do you yeah? Think... I think I think you have to think about it more. So you do you do sort of look at people a bit more up and down and try mm. and analyse people a bit more when you meet them. And you think, well, oh, that might be a good character or mm -hmm. that their particular character traits um, and of course if you're if you're writing about historical people then you, you you sometimes have to do a lot of research to find the tiniest bit of um, information um, so in the in the King's Crossfire um, <coughs> some of the some of the people that, that gave evidence to the inquest you know there was little bits of details about them being a mortgage advisor or something like that so you have a kind of picture in your head yeah. of what that person might be and like you were saying that all adds texture as well to what is you know essentially starts out as a memory and then you're building up into a story yeah and i know it's a an often much said thing about writing about editing and going back over but there's also a good thing to do with just going over and adding detail so what i did with the incidents i did a timeline of the king's cross fire for example and then i went through and did all the quotes from the the firefighters and the police officers that were the first on the scene and then i peppered in my own recollections of that night bearing in mind I didn't actually go to the fire although I was on duty so I'm in a completely different place thinking about completely different things hearing about this terrible tragedy unfolding so again it's back to the cake example you build up the layers mm -hmm. and gradually um, 
keep going over every pass you add another layer another layer another layer and then you can start stripping it back and seeing the, the bits you want to you want to keep and i think editing again it's a it, you know people say it all the time you have to, writing is all about the editing and you will write things over and over and over again until you're absolutely sick of the sight of those words but you have to remember that when that person who's reading it they're seeing it for the first time mm. you know so that's they're going to get a completely different impression from from your voice as a, as a writer and your editing process mm. and and finally you've been you you've done acting as a child is yeah. that right you've been a firefighter yeah you've been a journalist still are a journalist yeah. tv producer now author what advice would you give to somebody who's sitting in a job that they don't want to be in or that they know isn't right and they want to make that transition into writing what would you tell them just believe in it and, and don't set out on a on a writing project or a manuscript or a story that you're not engaged in if you're not engaged in it then your reader is never going to be engaged in it and I think just um belief I mean I stuck by this book various people told me that chapter five the golden chapter or chapter six I can't remember which is which but that should have been pulled forward and put to the front of the book and I, I said no this is the peak of the narrative arc this is where my story peaks this is the turning point in my career and a massive turning point in my life and I stuck to my guns on that with every agent and editor that disagreed with me mm. I st- um, stood my ground and actually the book has published the pretty much the way it was written great that's good, good thank, for you. You. <laughs> thank you that's great great well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast that was a good book sounds great and good luck with everything thank you the Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards come say hey at the-riffraff.com 